Good morning again and welcome to the Friday morning gathering of Redeemer Church of Dubai. Uh, It's great to see some new faces here uh, this morning. If this is your very first time with us, we want to extend just a big welcome to you. We are so thankful that in God's providence, He brought you here today uh, to worship God with us. And so we're thankful that you're here. I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'll be standing up at the front after the service. Uh, My name is Dave Furman. I'm the senior pastor here uh, at the church. Uh, So it's a blessing to meditate with you on the cross of Christ this morning. You know, after meditating on the richness of the cross this week, my eyes have been filled with tears and my heart overwhelmed with joy at what our God has done for us. And as we approach the cross today, this morning, we do grieve our sin We mourn the magnitude of our sin and the great cost that Jesus paid to free us from the slavery of sin. And yet, we celebrate the cross of Christ and we rejoice at the mercy of God found in the cross. And we exalt God the Father for His gracious provision and giving His Son to pay the ultimate price for sin. So in many ways, what we're doing this morning is what we do every week here at our gatherings. Each Friday we sing and we read and we pray and we preach about Jesus and his death and resurrection. Each week we look at the scriptures and we open them up and we see how each portion of scripture ultimately points to Jesus. That's because there is no greater reality, there's no greater news than the gospel The good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. It's not a truth that we move beyond in our Christian faith. We don't grow up in spiritual maturity and move on to another reality or a deeper truth. No, it's a truth that should change our hearts as we continue to meditate on it every day for the rest of our lives. And as I meditated on the cross this week, I was overcome with the question, God, why me? Who am I that you would save me? And how incredible that you would draw me from death and give me new life. So this morning as a church, we want to spend some time doing what we do every, every week. But on this occasion, we want to pause and look at one of the most beloved verses in all of the Bible. It's just one verse, but it's one of the most famous, one of the most often memorized, most cherished, and most adored verses in the Bible. It's a stunning verse that's packed with the greatest realities that exist. God and love, the world, the Son of God, belief and eternal life. I mean, what could be more important? What could be more relevant to you right now? What could be more urgent for you or more momentous for you than to know where you stand in relation to what God says to us in this verse? And so if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 3. 
It's the fourth book of the New Testament, and we'll be examining this morning the glorious verse 16. We'll spend a few minutes studying the contents of the verse that has become an anthem to so many Christians around the world. Perhaps it's a verse that you've memorized yourself. This morning we'll read starting in verse 14 on through verse 16 to give us some of the context to this particular verse. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When we pick up this passage in verse 17, Jesus is in the midst of talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Jesus is telling him how to be saved But Nicodemus didn't understand. Now, he was a teacher of the law. He was a religious person. But as we saw last week with the Pharisees, he just didn't get it. He was blind to Jesus. He was blinded to the truth. He didn't understand when Jesus said, you need to be born again. He was quite confused, and he's thinking, look at me. I'm a grown man. How can a grown man be born again? How can a grown man crawl up into his mother's womb? It's just not possible. And so Jesus interrupts Nicodemus. He says, don't be ridiculous. You need to be born again by the Spirit of God. And so in our passage this morning, he's telling Nicodemus the reason you can be born again. And as we examine verse 16, we'll see five things. Five things. One, we'll see our God. Two, we'll see our world. Three, our Savior. Four, our response. And five, our prize. That's where we're headed this morning, all in one single verse. God, world, Savior, response, and prize. Well, first we see our God. The verse 16 starts off, For God so loved the world. And if we were to have all day, we could go through the scriptures and name off attribute after attribute of God. We see in Genesis 1 that he is the great creator. He is the sustainer of the universe. In creating Adam and Eve and you and me, we see that God is personal. We see that he's not a mere force. He thinks and he wills. He loves and he hates. We see that he's holy and perfect and unwaveringly righteous. And here in our specific verse, we see a couple stunning things. First, we see that God is loving toward the world, so much so that he gave his one and only son. Do you see the emotion in this verse? He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's the emotion of love and care. It's the language of devotion in fact, in 1 John chapter 4, we read that God is love. God is the very definition of love. He's the epitome of love itself. 
It's a love that is the most powerful thing in the world. It's a love that can change us. It's a love that forgives us and renews us and restores us and encourages us and comforts us. But it doesn't stop there. The verse gives us the most beautiful illustration of this love in that it involved giving. Typically, that's how we demonstrate love on earth, isn't it? It is the giving of ourselves. Perhaps in marriage, it's the giving of your time to your spouse or giving of gifts or giving of our words, giving of our sacrifice and devotion and love. But in this case, we see that in the case of God the Father, He gives us His Son. It was the ultimate act of God's love for His children. This love is of of such a kind and such an intensity and such a magnitude that it moved God to spare not His Son, but to send Him on a mission to die. It's amazing for me as a father to consider my one and only son, my young child, to consider sending my little son to spare my enemies by giving him up to die. It's unfathomable for us as parents to consider this, but that's how much God loves his children. So whatever else you know about God and whatever else you hear about God today, make sure that you know that God is like that, that God loves us so much that he gives us his son. God is love. And as a child of God, God loves you as a father loves his kids a million times greater. He adores us and he delights in us. But this loving and giving is all the more miraculous and stunning when we understand who it is that he's loving. That's the second point in this magnificent verse, our world. Now, the most common meaning for world in the Gospel of John is the created and fallen totality of mankind. That is the way John is using the world here. It is the great mass of fallen humanity that needs salvation. We see this way back in the book of Genesis when we have failed that the first humans were guilty of sin and that every single human afterwards are born into sin and have failed to live under God's loving rule. Romans 3 says that none of us are righteous, not even one. And John gives us an illustration here of what our unrighteous looks like as he points back to the Old Testament. He makes a conscious reference in verse 14 to Numbers chapter 21. Look back at verse 14 with me. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Let me stop here and tell you what's happening in Numbers chapter 21. We see that the Israelites had just come out of Egypt. We see the great exodus and we see the Israelites at the very verge at the cusp of the Red Sea and we see the Egyptians are coming after them and there's no hope for them. They're about to be overtaken and yet God in miraculous ways parts the Red Sea. It's incredible, every time I think about it, he parts the water and the Israelites walk on dry ground. And after they escape the Egyptians and after they realize God has just saved them, they praise God. They rejoice in what God has done. They sing praises, they sing psalms. And yet when you read through Exodus, you see that those praises to God begin kind of 
kind of being forget, forgotten and kind of just fall away. We see that the Israelites begin to complain. They begin to grumble against God. They begin to forget what God had done for them. They yearned to be back in Egypt. Their bodies had left Egypt, but their minds and their hearts remained back in that land of slavery. So they griped. They didn't appreciate Moses' leadership in bringing them to the wilderness. They didn't like the ambiance. They certainly didn't like the food. There was no chilies or automatic, no gazebo down the corner for some delicious Indian food, no delivery system to bring them what they wanted. And so they yearned to go back to the steady diet they had in Egypt, the vegetables, the meat, the food. What they had in the wilderness was this manna. It was a white, flaky, sweet substance that God had graciously and lovingly provided on the ground every morning. But they complained. What could we do with this, they thought? Chicken fried manna, manna shawarma. I mean, there's only so much manna masala a guy can eat. But they did their best. They ate manna day after day after day. And though God had provided so graciously to them, this wonderful food, it wasn't good enough for them. And so the people of God began complaining And so God hears their grumbling, he hears the complaining, and he does something about it. He sends poisonous snakes into the camp. Now, I don't know about you, but snakes freak me out a little bit, actually quite a lot. I remember being in Marrakesh, Morocco, at the square there where all the snake charmers and snakes are, and it's a great little business they have there. You know, everyone wants a picture with a snake. It's fun to have a picture of a snake wrapped around your neck. It's great for Facebook. It's great for Twitter. It's great for your popularity. No problem. I mean, it's free there. Without charge, the snake charmer will take its snake and put it around your neck for free. But you know what they do once you have the snake, right? They charge you for their services of getting the snake off of you. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's wonderful business for them, especially if you're like me and you start freaking out and crying like a girl. Get it off me. Eventually they do after you pay your money. Perhaps you're terrified of snakes as well. They're scary things. And so here with the people of God, God lets loose not only snakes, but a whole plethora of poisonous snakes go out throughout the whole camp as a judgment for their complaining against God. The people are probably screaming and crying and running around trying to elude the snakes. Yet the the text in Numbers says many of the people were bitten by the snakes and some of them even died. It was a terrible scene. But the Israelites got the message pretty fast and they turned to Moses and they said, Moses, go to God. Beg God to get these snakes out of here. Beg God to stop these snakes and to heal the people who have been bitten. We can't live like this. It's tearing us apart. So Moses goes to God. Back in Numbers, he goes to God and God gives Moses an odd instruction. It's quite strange, actually. God tells Moses, Moses, put up a tall pole there in the camp. And on top of the pole, put a large bronze serpent, a large snake. 
and tell the people that if they are bitten by one of the snakes, they are to go to the pole and they are to look up at the snake. If they do so, then they will be healed. And that moment that they believe and look upon the snake, the snake bite will be gone, their health will be restored. See, the reason Jesus is telling Nicodemus this story is not just because it's a story of the Israelites. That's not why he's making this reference in verse 14. But it's because it's Nicodemus' story. And it's our story. All of us have grumbled against God. We have murmured against Him and have been ungrateful for His provision. We have sinned against Him and rejected His ways, preferring our own. In fact, we've tried to save ourselves. And yet God's word is clear from the very beginning of Genesis onto Revelation that our positive thinking can't save us. Our good works can't save us. We can't manufacture salvation any more than the Israelites could escape the snakes. We can't program it or produce it. We can't even initiate salvation. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says the wages of this sin is death. No, we've all been bitten by the snake, the serpent. We all need help. We've fallen for the lies of this world and have followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. We need help. But did you notice the first two words of verse 14? Just as Just as Moses lifted the serpent on the piece of wood, I will be lifted up. In the same way the Son of Man was lifted up. That's the third point that we see in this marvelous verse 16. It's our Savior. We see in this beautiful verse, our Savior. Jesus is saying to us, in the same way the serpent is placed on that pole, I'll be lifted up and placed on a pole one day. In the same way, the Israelites were required to look up at the serpent and believe, you will have to look up upon me and believe. This was all because Jesus is unique. He is fully God and fully man, and he alone did not stand under God's judgment. He alone never grumbled against God. This is why he alone could stand as our substitute. Now, Jesus was born to die, and we know the end of the story. That, in fact, shortly after this passage, he would soon be placed on a pole and lifted up off the ground. That he'd hang there on the cross made of the wood that he created. That nails made of the mineral elements that he spoke into existence would pierce through his hands and would pierce through his feet. Men whom he created and formed, whom he loves, stripped him naked, whipped him, beat him, and spit in his face. And God the Father whom he loves, who loves him, whom he was in perfect community, perfect community forever. Jesus was never created. He's the eternal son the eternal triune God, God Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed for all eternity. The Son wasn't created. No, the Father did not have relations with Mary. No, Jesus 
It was from the very beginning, in perfect community with the Father, whom he loved, and yet the Father turned his face from his Son. And it was there on the cross that all of our sins were laid upon him like a blanket, suffocating him to death. All our sin, all our evil, all our wickedness laid upon him. As Glenn read from earlier, 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, our sin demanded justice, and so only two options remain. One, we die apart from God, or two, the one who is perfect, the one who was sinned against, dies in our place as our substitute. And he did. He became what Romans 3 calls the just, the one who has executed justice, and the justifier, the one who had justice taken upon himself. No, Jesus, the Son of God, provided a way out for us by dying for us. And he did so willingly. He did so of his own accord. John 10 says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. He gives his life for us. Friends, this is the Savior of the world. And our response to the Savior is clear in this passage. It's crystal clear that our response is to believe in Jesus. And that's the fourth point in this most miraculous verse. Our response is to believe in Jesus. Just as the Israelites looked upon the serpent on the pole by faith and were healed, we must look upon Jesus on the cross and believe in faith that he can heal us from our sin. To be healed, you need to look at him who suffered, who was crucified, and who died for sin. You need to look at him and believe that in that moment, he was paying the penalty for every single sin in your life, past, present, and future. You need to believe that the total sum of your wicked deeds were placed upon him on the cross, that all of your pride and arrogance was upon him, that your lust and your greed covered him, that your wicked thoughts and gossip and anger engulfed him until he breathed. His final breath. No, in response to his death, what must we do? We must believe that God put the solution on the post for us. We must believe that Christ bore our sin on his body on the tree. And that means that these verses are also a sobering reality for us. It means that not everybody will benefit from what Jesus came to do. But in verse 15, it's whoever believes in him who will not perish but have eternal life. And in 16, he repeats it again. Whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. Friends, believe in him today and you shall have the prize. And that's the fifth and final point in this most wonderful verse. And that's the reason Jesus came, so that we would not perish, but have eternal life. That's the prize. It's eternal life. And so this is of utter importance to us. 
it's of utter importance to us because there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and people actually go there. Hell is real. It's not being annihilated. It's not a big eternal time out in the corner. It's just not right. That's not reality. And when we talk about being saved, we need to understand what it is that we're being saved from. It's not a place where God is absent quite opposite. It's a place of conscious, eternal punishment from a righteous God. It's the most horrendous place ever created without hope and without pardon. And so that's why for us here at Redeemer, the cross is so important to us. That's why we talk about it each week. It's because there is nothing worse than hell. Not poverty, not cancer, not global warming, not world hunger. All those things are bad things. But nothing is worse than everlasting punishment from a righteous God. Nothing. And so as a church, there is nothing more important to us than to preach this life-giving message of how people can escape hell and enjoy God forever. And so as a pastor, I want to hold out to you this great gospel this morning. I want to hold out this truth, and I want to entreat you to believe in Jesus. I want to urge you to believe in Jesus so that you may experience eternal life. If you've never done this this morning, I encourage you to do so today. And if something is keeping you from doing so, if you're resistant, I'd ask you this morning, why? What is keeping you from believing? Is it lack of faith? Well, then I'd encourage you to pray right now, to ask God to help your unbelief, to give you faith. If it's pride, pray and ask God to humble you. If you're afraid your family and friends will hate you and might cause you pain, well, friend, I can't even imagine what that is like. But I want to encourage you from the Apostle Paul's words when he says that the momentary and light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to you if you believe. And if you don't believe because you've been hurt by the church and you say that the church is just a bunch of hypocrites, well, friend, I would say that you are absolutely right. We don't always do what we say and we don't always practice what we preach. No, we are those saved by the grace of God through faith. And yet at times we forget the gospel, we forget the cross and we hurt each other. We reject each other. We fight, we fight anger and lust and greed. We don't always do what we say, yet we yearn to do what we say. We yearn to help one another. No, the church isn't filled with healthy people. No, it's a hospital for the sick. And I encourage you to join us. I encourage you to come walk alongside a group of pardoned rebels who are learning how to love God and who are learning how to love each other. We're still working towards that. Please don't let other Christians, don't let Christians keep you from believing in Jesus and joining us. I encourage you to believe in Jesus for eternal life. Now this prize that's given to Christians does not simply mean you exist forever. No, everybody exists forever. No, eternal life is the life of heaven found only in Christ. 
It's a place where we will be face to face with Christ the King. And as he told the thief on the cross, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. No, eternal life means face to face with Jesus. It means we'll be in a place of resplendent glory. And that being with Christ in glory will far outweigh even the most earthly riches here on earth. That's why Paul in the book of Philippians can tell the Philippians, I love you and I care about you and I'm concerned about you and I love being with you, but but to die and to be with Christ is better by far. No, it's the place where we will be freed from temptation and sin. We will be made perfect and cleansed from even a little tarnish of sin. It's incredible to ponder such a place. We won't even fight our flesh anymore. There will not be even this temptation. We will be worshiping God fully and freely. And it's a place where we will have new bodies. Mangled nerves will be straightened. Cancer will be obliterated. And it's a place where death has died forever. Friends, are you living with that life in view? Or is your gaze distracted by the world? Do you dwell on the riches of the gospel? That when you were born again, you are now part of God's kingdom forever and ever, and he will never let you go. When as we approach communion in a few minutes, I want us to meditate on the contents of this verse. I want you to meditate on the meaning of this verse for your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This verse, this verse, this reality means that Craig and Clara, your sins are forgiven by Christ. For Frank and for Sneha, it means that before you were ever born, God had written your names in the Lamb's book of life. Thankachin, Valsama, it means that when Christ was dying on the cross, it means he had you in mind in that very moment. Sheree, it means that you will have eternal life no matter what. Donna, Christ died for you. Deborah, God loves you as a father would love his kids, even more so. Rajesh, there is nothing you can do to lose your eternal life. It has been won for you. Ron and Kim, God has forgiven you of your sins. Brian, God loves you with tenderness and affection and loved you even while you were yet a sinner. Arno, God has given you everlasting life. 
Martin, God has forgiven you of your sins. Friends, in Christ, God has redeemed us. God has restored us. God has given us hope. And so today really is Good Friday. It's a Good Friday because we have hope in Christ alone. And so it's fitting that we take part in communion this morning. And so let's go to our great God in prayer now, asking that God would prepare our hearts to eat of the bread and to drink of the juice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We admit to you that a simple thank you is an inadequate word to describe to you how we feel. Your love is simply amazing that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son for us. It puzzles us. It's unfathomable. This display of your grace and mercy overwhelms us. Oh, Father, help us to respond to you in awe and appreciation and guide our hearts and minds now as we take part in the Lord's Supper. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.